Good morning. How, how's everybody doing? I'm just going to move forward. I love to be close. There we are. Excellent. I'd just like to start actually by thanking Bruce Billington, who uh, I was scheduled to share a couple of weeks ago, and I had a really good dose of that flu that a lot of people have had, and uh, he was able to step in for me. So I just wanted to say thank you to Bruce for providing uh, cover a couple of weeks ago. You know, I was scheduled to speak after long after the long weekend, Queen's birthday. Does anyone remember that? Is that just a blur that's disappeared into sort of wherever it's gone? Um, and, you know, I think we've all had those times where we're looking forward to a long weekend and we think, oh man, I've got to make the most of that. And so we end up filling our whole extra time with so much stuff that we go back to work needing a bit of a rest. And... When I, when I rest, one of the things that I love to do is to go running, and I've got a couple of like, stories that are to do with running this morning, but this week we had the winter solstice, the shortest day and the longest night, and on the winter solstice I went for a run up to Boulder Hill, which is at the top of the Belmont Regional Park where, uh, in relation to Haywards Hill. And I looked over and I could see the South Island better than I had ever seen it before. It looked about sort of six swift swimming strokes across. The golden sun was like radiating like behind the whole of the Southern Alps and there were blues and blacks. It was just a beautiful thing to look at. And I turned around and I looked at the Hutt Valley and the orange light was reflected over Upper Hutt and there was this really pretty bright blue sort of ring of smoke from all of the fires that people had had. It was just such a nice thing to look at. And I don't know about you, I don't have the luxury of a wood burner, but I do love every opportunity I get to sit in a home or a lounge, and his family used to have one. It was just so nice to start the fire, and it's just such a rich warmth. And the story's told of an old woodsman who needed some supplies. And so he went into town and he arrived at the general store. One of the things that he needed was a new axe. He arrives at the counter and he sees this great new product there. It's a chainsaw. It's advertising to cut down twice as many trees as any other product on the market. So obviously he picks it up, he buys it, along with his other things that he needs. But a week later he's back. He's back at the counter, talking to the owner of the store, and he says... You know, I used to be able to fell 10 trees a day with my axe. Now with a lot more work, working much harder, I'm lucky to get one or two. What's going on? What's the promise? You know, you promised this product would be super productive. The owner of the stores looks curious. He checks the chain, checks all the spark plugs. It looks fine. Flicks the switch, pulls the cord. Vroom! Roars into life. The woodsman jumps back. What's that? That's a silly story. But I think we're often like that woodsman. You know, we love to do things. We love to like just get something and just get on with it and do. We want to be useful, but we don't always stop to think and to take time. And, you know, I think sometimes when it comes to our Christian life, we've got a few tools and we think we know how to use them, so we box on. You know, we want to get things done. We want to get things done for ourselves and for our families um, and in the kingdom of God, but if we don't take time to stop and to spend with the owner of the store, I don't think we're going to achieve all that we can and all that we could for the kingdom of God. We've got to know the owner of the store. And if we do, we'll be more focused, more confident, 
more clear in who we are and who we've made to be, more centered than anyone else around us. We'll have more confidence in his character and his promises for us. The title of the message this morning is called Being a Mary in a Martha World. I didn't make that title up. We had a young man visit us from Hamilton, who I've become friends with earlier this year to share with youth and with frequency. And the year before, when I'd met him, he was full of this idea of being Mary in a Martha world. And it really captured my imagination as well. And we read the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. I'm not going to read it along if you want to join in with me. On your own Bible, not like at the same time, not reading together. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And I love what On shared, and I really want to talk, I guess the message this morning is, how do we live that kingdom lifestyle? How do we uh, embody the life of being a member and, and and a citizen of the king? So if we're going to be Mary in a Martha world, what is a Martha world? Well, it says Martha was distracted with much serving. And I think there is so, we all know that the list of distractions today could go on forever. I came across this woman who I'd never heard of on the cover of the New York Times magazine about a month ago. Her name's Amanda Chantel Bacon. I know what you're thinking, delicious last name. But she runs a company called Moon Juice, which is the hippest of the hip of the trendiest when it comes to wellness products. And wellness products are things I sort of like to call potion foods. You know, it's sort of maca powder or plant-based protein sort of supplements. They've got a range of sort of turmeric snacks, uh, lots of tweaked lattes. Uh, They've got a range of dusts with medical benefits (laughs) claimed. But this article contains some supremely insightful observations about Martha culture today and how that Martha culture influences us without us noticing. The first observation I want to share was about technology, and she, the reporter wrote this. We have wrought a world where the upwardly mobile are obsessed with productivity. Indeed, productivity itself has become a kind of class signifier Even recreation among the elite bears all the hallmarks of work with metrics and documentation governing all activity. Do you feel that? Do you know people who are just obsessed with productivity, not just to do a great job at their job, but in all of the different areas of their life? And there's so many more ways to measure what we're doing and show what we're doing than ever before. But the real zinger in the article was this one. She wrote, what companies like Moon Juice sell is the notion that it's not only excusable, but worthy for a person to spend hours a day focused on her tiniest mood shifts, food choices, beauty rituals, exercise habits, 
bathing routines, and sleep schedule. What they sell is self-absorption as the ultimate luxury product. Wow, we're living in a world where total self-absorption isn't frowned upon. It's, it's seen as a coveted luxury product. Jeremy Bentham was a philosopher and social theorist. He was born in England in 1748. And one of his enduring ideas and innovations is this type of building, which is called a panopticon. A panopticon consists of a large circular structure with a smaller structure in the middle. And though none of these buildings were built exactly as he intended or, or drew, the closest application that they've been used for is for prisons. And the innovation is one of efficiency. This, this design allows one guard to monitor a whole prison worth of inmates. And the reason that he can do that is because he's in the middle, the design obscures the guard from the view of the prisoners. And so he can't actually be watching everybody all the time. But because the prisoners don't know if they're being watched or not, they have to assume that they are. And this panopticon is a metaphor that's increasingly being applied to all of the social media, uh, the social sort of publishing um, things that we have access to today. You know, people might not always be liking our posts or contacting us, but they could be. Things might not always be happening. News and gossip and scandal don't happen all of the time, but they could. You know, we might be having great fun what we're doing, but what might we be missing out on? And as someone who spends a lot of time with youth, I just see how acute the pressure is for young people to be on all of the time today. Several of the thoughts uh, that I'm sharing from, uh, are from a book called uh, Imagining the Kingdom, How Worship Works. And it's written by a guy called James K.A. Smith. And he comments on the effect of social media like this. He says, the teenager at home does not escape the game of self-consciousness. Instead, she is constantly aware of being on display, and, is, and she is regularly aware of the exhibitions of others. She is compelled to be constantly on, to be updating, to be checking in. The competition for coolness never stops. Again, the pressure is to be Martha, to be presenting this great thing of all of the things that you're doing. You know, look what I'm doing, rather than Mary, content where she is at rest. And the problem with being self-conscious is that you're not free. It puts you like a deer in the headlights. Think about when you're doing your favorite activity. You know, you're lost in it. You're not thinking about what you look like. When I'm running, I'm noticing trees. I'm enjoying nature. I'm not thinking about all the other people that sort of might be running at the same time and sort of if they're quicker than me or their stride is longer. I'm in the joy of the moment. And I distinctly remember a time where I was lost in something and then I became acutely self-aware. It was at a church family camp, the first night in the gym, a classic dads and kids soccer game. And it was a great, it was super competitive. Everybody was stoked to be somewhere else away with their family. And, you know, I'd scored a couple of goals. It was going really well. And then I looked over and I see at the entrance to the gym these two people, these two young guys who were older than me and miles cooler than me. They like popped in, looked out, looked around, saw what was happening, and then they left again. And man, I, was, I saw that and I was like, oh, I was acutely self-aware. I was like, wow, something else is going on and, and I'm not part of it. I wonder what they're doing. I flunked out of the game at that point. I wanted to do something else. And Martha was worried about how things would look 
whether they had enough food, whether she had the nicest food, the choicest food, the most fashionable food, how the house looked. Mary was lost in listening to Jesus. You've heard it, you might have heard it said before, you've likely heard it said before, you are what you love. You are what you love. And what this means is that we truly show what we love by our actions, not by what we say. Many of us might know great answers to, if we're asked, what do you love? We might know the right things to say, or we might have some great answers that we think are true. But our actions show what we truly believe. And the challenge that this poses to us is that we might not love what we think. Our head answers might not have made it to our heart. Martha might have known the right answers if she was asked what she loved, but she was showing with her actions what she thought was the most important. So if we might not know, if we might not love what we think, how do we check? One of my hobbies is collecting great questions. Sometimes um, on a particularly special day, I'll collect like a parcel of questions that all go together, and it's an, oh, it's a great day. And I want to share one of those, some, a few questions with you that will help you to see, hey, what, what do I really love? So the first one, what do you love? What do you get lost in? How do we answer that? We think, what do I look forward to? What do I like, greatly anticipate? What are the things that I do that, that just lead me to lose track of time? Second question. How do those things that we love connect to our picture of the good life? What's, what's the good life? I've put the good life in capitals because the good life in this question is, is what is the picture of human flourishing that you think that you really want to aspire to? What picture of living captures your imagination? A bunch of young people here, we explored these questions at home group together. And you know, the good life wasn't sitting on a beach somewhere with a drink in hand, totally doing nothing. It was deeper than that. The good life was simple. The good life was creative. Overwhelmingly, it was relaxed, filled with strong relationships and satisfying work. It's important to think of what, what, our, what is our picture and what is our answer to, to the good life because of question three. How does our picture of the good life fit with the kingdom vision of God? Is our picture of the good life that we're aspiring to lining up with God's kingdom vision for us? And and I just talked about the kingdom today, and and a lot of what we believe here at Lane Park Church is that the, the kingdom vision of God is his people living in purpose. And it's a purpose with a little p and with a capital P. The little p got a purpose for each and every one of us according to the gifts and talents and strengths that God has, has given us. And then as a capital P, what is it, the kingdom vision of God for all believers? We, we've got to look at both. And so to find your purpose with a little p, we've got purpose workshops that Jesse has ordered and organized, and we really want to help people to understand what their individual purpose is. But today I want to talk about our purpose with a capital P. And I, I would say that, the, that go, this would go a long way to describing the kingdom vision of God for all believers, and that would be to live out the two greats. 
the greatest commandment and the great commission. To live out the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And by doing so, outwork the great commission to go into all the world and baptize people in the, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that we've been commanded. And these three questions, they, they aren't easily answered. They take a long time. They invite, they're an invitation to really, to really think deeply. But are our lives building the kingdom vision of God in us? Or are we falling for the tricks and the pressures and the traps of Martha culture? If we're going to be like Martha, uh, if we're going to be like Mary and avoid being like Martha, we need to remember that it's the great co-mission, not the great solo mission. We need to be, we're, not, we're not to be Martha working to ourselves to the bone by ourselves. We've got to remember that it's God and us. And to do this, we've got to be like Mary. We need to know him, and we need to prioritize knowing him. This is what Jesus was affirming when he said to Martha, few things are needed, and indeed only one. We need to know him. So how are we going to protest? How are we going to protest toward, like, against the Martha culture of today? I want to suggest three protests. The first protest is rest. Exciting, exciting protest. Um, the Ten Commandments are detailed twice in, in the Old Testament. The first in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy. The first is when Moses receives them on Mount Sinai. And the second in Deuteronomy as a reminder to the people after wandering in the desert for 40 years. And the fifth commandment is to keep the Sabbath day holy. And in Exodus that commandment reads like this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The version in Deuteronomy is almost exactly the same, but it includes, I think, an important addition. Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, I'll race through the first bit, and then just draw like a, yeah. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your female or or male servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. And then verse 15 is the addition. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. If we need a good reason to rest a day a week, how about to prove that we're not slaves, even if just self-imposed ones today? The second protest I'd like to suggest is feasting. And I love, Ange, that you talked about your national day as a time of celebration with feasting. I recently came across an article on the Gospel Coalition website which was called Feasting as an Act of War. I mean, there is a, there is a war that even the most ardent pacifist can get in behind, right? 
And the article referenced a scene from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You might know the story well. Narnia is being ruled by the White Witch, and it's perpetually winter and never Christmas. Edmund betrays his brother and his two sisters for a box of Turkish delight. And we're going to pick up the story here with Edmund and the White Witch traveling to the showdown at the stone table with Aslan. We can have a little bit of story time in church, can we? I'll read from the book. Nice. How Edmund hoped that she was going to say something about breakfast. Oh, sorry. So Edmund and the White Witch are traveling on the sledge pulled by a reindeer. How Edmund hoped that she was going to say something about breakfast, but she stopped for quite a different reason. A little way off at the foot of a tree sat a merry party. A squirrel and his wife with their children, and two satyrs and a dwarf and an old dog fox, all on stools around a table. Edmund couldn't quite see what they were eating, but it smelled lovely. There seemed to be decorations of holly, and he wasn't at all sure that he didn't see something like some plum pudding. At the moment when the sledge stopped, the fox, who was obviously the oldest person present, had just risen to its feet, holding a glass in its right paw, as if he was going to say something. But when the whole party saw who was in the sledge, all the gaiety went out of their faces. The father squirrel stopped eating with his fork halfway to his mouth. And one of the satyrs stopped with it actually in his mouth. And the baby squirrel squeaked with terror. What's the meaning of this? asked the witch queen. Nobody answered. Speak, vermin, she said again. Or do you want my dwarf to find you a tongue with his whip? What's the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste? this self-indulgence. Where did you get all these things? Please, please, your majesty, said the fox. We were given them. And if I might be so bold as to drink to your majesty's very good health, who gave them to you, said the witch. Father, Father Christmas, stammered the fox. What, roared the witch, springing from the sledge and taking a few strides nearer to the terrified animals. He's not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you? You see, the joy and the revelry and the feasting deeply threatened the witch. The animals gathered together in the joy that Father Christmas had been, that winter was on its way toward ending and that spring was coming. And the article brought that, to, brought that home like this. When God's people gather together and feast on the sumptuous foods, prepared by loving hands, from the chili seasoned and stewed in our father's crock pot to the casseroles baked to perfection in our grandmother's oven. We are making a declaration. No matter how awful the state of the world, how dire the darkness of our culture, we are people of the risen king. We believe that evil will be defeated and that good will triumph. Why? Because our saviour's tomb was empty. How often do we think about that, that our king is coming back, that the world will be restored to the glory originally intended it, that the winter of sin and death will give away to the spring of Jesus' return? And then how often do we get together and just celebrate that? Thirdly, I think the ultimate protest is worship. And when I say worship, I don't just mean singing. I mean everything that believers do when they gather together around the good news. And it's so cool to talk today on a day that we've celebrated truly the good news. And Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to the good news, listening to his word. 
in Imagining the Kingdom, Smith says this. He says, worship is where you learn to take the right things for granted. Worship is where you learn to take the right things for granted. I love that. And I've listed some of those things. What do, we take, what do we learn to take for granted? That our worth and value doesn't come from our performance or the good things that we're doing. Like Colossians 3.3, 3, that we are so safe that our life is hidden with Christ in God. That God is going to care for us, that we are not our own, that we were bought by him at a price. And worship reminds us and trains us that we're not at the center of things, that God is. We train ourselves as we go and we drink a little bit of juice and eat a little bit of bread. We're training ourselves by doing that, that God is the center of our lives. It reminds us that our family and our wives and our husbands, our jobs, our sport, productivity, we, we're not at the center of the universe. Worship focuses us on the only thing that's going to have eternal significance. It focuses us on the God who said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And that's what Jesus' answer to Mary says, uh, Martha says, Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. There's nothing else like that. If we fail at our career, our profession's not going to forgive us. Our profession's not going to mind. If we make our family the ultimate thing and we lose that, then we're lost. I recently learned that the boxer George Foreman is a Christian and a minister. I thought, you know, from my flatting days that he just sold sort of mid-range kitchen appliances that knocked out the fat. (laughs) He was once the most feared and the greatest boxer in the world. And he'd never lost until he met Muhammad Ali in the rumble in the jungle, the most famous boxing match of all time. And after he lost, he was just filled with revenge and vendetta. He was determined to get another crack at Ali to prove he was better. And so he had to go through a a number of fights to be able to challenge Ali again. And after a few of those, he actually suffered a second loss to an up-and-comer named Jimmy Young. And Foreman talks about leaving the room, and he just looked out, and the crowd looked at him, and he said he just saw pity in their eyes. And he said it was the same pity that he'd seen when he was at school and he had no food to eat and he'd brought an empty lunch bag around so that he could at least have the bag there. He said he just saw pity in their eyes and the air conditioning wasn't working in his changing room and he said after that fight that he was walking backwards and forth, pacing the room, convinced he was going to die. He said he could smell death in the room. And he said he looked around and he saw a great big junkyard and nothing when when he thought about that and he collapsed And his team lifted him up and put him onto the table. And in desperation, he cried out. He said, I don't care if this is death. I still believe there is a God. And he said that he had this amazing experience of feeling a gigantic hand cradle him. And he cried out, Jesus Christ has come alive in me. One moment totally transformed his life. might be fine to suggest protests, but what do we do if we find ourselves as Martha, with more commitments than we can make, and without capacity to sit and rest? I want to quickly give three suggestions of how do we, can get own, we can regain ownership of our timetable. First is being flexible. 
You know, I'm a person who likes to set goals. At the start of the year, I like to choose two or three things that I might either improve about myself or, uh, you know, something that I'd like to achieve at the end of the year. And I have high standards for myself. And sometimes this has meant that I've, in, in trying to get to the goal, I've neglected some of the important relationships in my life a bit. But I've realized that my goals need to serve me, not tyrannize me. I've actually had to give up um, or postpone the last three big goals that I've set for myself. Two of those were academic and goals, and one of them I'm going to share in a second. But, you know, it really hurt to fail. It hurt to spend money and not get to the finish line. But I'd realized that I had overreached and it was going to cost too much to actually get to the goal. Second, if we find ourselves as Martha, is to eliminate all pretend agreements. Pretend agreements are like my fav- one of my favorite terms from David Riddell in Living Wisdom. And a, a pretend agreement is what you're in if, if you and somebody else have sort of got an arrangement, but you've never actually gotten into detail and, and come to a real agreement. So an example might be in a marriage, you know, you might pretend that you've agreed that if you find the deal that's just good enough, then you're allowed to make a big financial decision on your own. Maybe you're in a pretend agreement with your boss, that your boss pretends that you've agreed that you're going to be available on email sort of four nights a week until 11 o'clock. You're, you might be in a pretend agreement if you get asked to volunteer and you know you don't go through the size of the time commitment and, and that person thinks that you've agreed to sort of three nights a week when really you just, you know, you, you thought it was going to be less than that. Whole groups can be in pretend agreements. We, you know, an example might be about the time that we've agreed to meet together on a Sunday to worship together. A little joke. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> finally, finally, a third, if, we're Mar- if we find ourselves as Martha, just simply saying no. Learning to say no. Just because somebody has asked you to do something, and just because it's a good thing that they've asked you to do, doesn't mean that you have to do it, or you're that the or that you are the best person to do it. One of the goals that I had before Anna and I have our first child was to run a marathon. And so in March this year, I I looked ahead and I picked out a race that I thought I'd be able to get in shape and time for. And I researched the training mountain that I'd have to undertake. You know, I've got a very accomplished father when it comes to running. So in order to hold my head up high in the family, I had to do a certain quality of race as well. And as I was, as I was getting, I, I was running, and I was running longer and further and more often, and I just started to get really tired. But I, I wanted to meet this goal, and I wanted to achieve this thing, and so I just kept going. And after a, a while, I found myself just after five minutes, I was totally exhausted. I'd fallen into overtraining where my body actually couldn't recover enough in the amount of rest that I was giving it. So I had to take a break, and I chose a new marathon at a new date and a sort of slightly revised training mountain, and I got stuck into that one. And again, I wasn't patient enough. I got a strain in my foot, another two weeks of resting. And it was really frustrating, but what's more, what was happening with my running in the physical was really like almost exactly mirroring what was happening in my spiritual life. You know, I was trying really hard. I was putting in time. I was... Yeah, just really wanting to see things happen and see things become that I I wanted to see. And in the midst of this, I woke up in the night with this scripture just repeating in my head. 
and it was Isaiah 30, 15. And repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. I'd realized that I'd been trying to do everything myself. I'd forgotten that it was the great co-mission, not the great solo mission. And I'd believed that by pouring myself into things and working hard, I'd get results. I'd forgotten that God said that he'll build his church, both out there and in me. And my job is to let him build it. This verse taught me that I'd let him build it in quietness and in trust, in repentance and rest. You know, there's pressure everywhere in the world to be Martha, to be constantly a person of activity. But being self-focused and being self-conscious, that really stops us from living well. It is our actions that show what we truly love, not what we say. And I I really want to, like, I love the idea of protesting against that sort of culture through rest, through feasting, but ultimately through worship. To live out the two greats, the greatest commandment and the great commission. Doing that will build the only thing in us that we can never lose. I just want to finish again with those three questions and invite you to take them down this week to think about. They really can't be answered that quickly. What do you love? What do you get lost in? Secondly, what is it about those things that points to and connects to what you think the good life is? Number three, the most important one, I think. How does your picture of the good life compare with the kingdom vision of God? How well does it align with the kingdom vision of God? And finally, one extra question in particular this week. What's one thing that you can do that will bring those two things into closer alignment? I discovered this prayer as I was um, working toward this message and just in my reading. And I'd just like to read this to finish. It's in the notices because it's quite, there's like a few words. And um, it's a good thing to think about. So if you wanted to read that this week or, or just at least follow along, I think that would be cool. And it just really encapsulates what I've been trying to share today. It's by John Henry Newman. And it goes like this. It says, May it be our blessedness as years go on to add one grace to another and advance upward step by step, neither neglecting the lower after attaining the higher, nor aiming at the higher before attaining the lower. The first is faith, the last is love. First comes zeal, afterwards comes loving kindness. First comes humiliation, then comes peace. First comes diligence, then comes resignation. May we learn to mature all graces in us, fearing and trembling, watching and repenting, because Christ is coming. Joyful, thankful, and careless of the future, because he has come. Thank you.